0: This is chapter 149 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we chat with perennial bestseller Mary Kay Andrews about her latest beach read, but don't call it a guilty pleasure. Then we talk with author Megan Campisi, whose new novel centers around the little-known tradition of sin-eating. Before she was the best-selling novelist of 27 books, Mary Kay Andrews honed her writing chops as a newspaper reporter. She pays tribute to her past in her latest novel, Hello Summer, which features a tenacious reporter, a political mystery, some family drama, and of course, a dash of romance. I recently got to speak with the Queen of Beach Reads about this week's Summer Read Pick. You pay homage to your newspaper roots with this book. Why was the time right to honor that part of your past?
1: Well, you know, uh, I started working on this book a year ago, and I wasn't really thinking so much about timing as my desire to kind of write a love letter to print journalism. But um, over the space of a year, um, things, you know, things just got crazier and crazier. And um, of course, the print journalism business is is in trouble. And um, it was already in trouble before all of this, but with everything else going on, it's, uh, you know, some things have been exacerbated. On the other hand, um, some some, and some smaller ones are doing well because they've really figured out what their communities are asking for. And I think that's kind of um, what, Conley finds out when she's working for the for her family newspaper that, you know, local journalism matters and the community needs it and wants it.
0: Tell us a little bit more about your main character, Conley, and what she stumbles upon in Hello Summer.
1: Well, Conley has been a hard charging investigative reporter working uh, for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which not coincidentally was the last newspaper I worked at and um she's gone home to her very reluctantly to silver bay florida in the panhandle and she's reluctantly been guilt-tripped into taking a job at the at the family's struggling weekly paper within a few nights of being back in town uh, she's getting cabin fever. There's, no, there's nothing to do in this tiny town. They roll up the sidewalks at 9 o'clock. So she goes out to, for, to have a drink at the only place around that's open late at night, and that's the American Legion Bar, which is about 30 miles out of town. Um, she goes there, runs into an old, old family friends. They have some drinks. They dance to the jukebox and head home at 3 in the morning. And on their way home, on a lonely country road, they come across a... Um, a one-car wreck, and it's an escalade, and smoke is pouring out of the engine. It's been overturned. They can see somebody inside, a passenger not moving, but they can't get, get him out. They call 911. The fire trucks arrive. The car bursts into flame, and the uh, you know, driver is, does not make it. And um, they have no idea who the driver is, but they know it's because of the stickers on the car. It's somebody from Silver Bay. The next day, they learned that the driver was the district's longtime um, conservative Republican congressman. And so the questions immediately start to um, pop up. He turns out his family has not disclosed that he's had a terminal cancer diagnosis. So he's in his late 70s, early 80s. What's he doing out in the middle of nowhere at three in the morning? He's, you know, been very ill, Um and then more things happen.
0: So Conley happens to to be in the right place at the right time when it comes to this big political story in her hometown. Were you ever that lucky as as a reporter?
1: Uh, not right. Well, I, I'll tell you, I, I have stumbled across some stories uh, just crazily being in the right place at the right time. Years ago, I did a story about... Um, this woman they called the Black Widow. She had poisoned two or three of her husbands. She'd been in prison, gotten out of prison, walked away. She was on the lam, and um, there was a, you know, big search going on for her. And I got sent over to Alabama to write about the story. And uh, while I was on my way there, they found her. She had died of hypothermia. She'd crawled into somebody's yard and, you know, died. So I was, in this small town, Alabama, doing the story. And of course, the one person you want to interview is her husband who lived in the town. But you know, how are you going to find him? I so weird. I stopped at a, um, at a waffle house on the way out of town to get some breakfast. And I had seen pictures of the husband and I look at the counter and there's a husband sitting there having a cup of coffee, (laughs) talking to the waitress. And that's, that's a memorable time for me. I went up and I, you know, offered my condolences and asked him if he had anything to say, and he he didn't have much to say.
0: There's nothing like the feeling of having a scoop.
1: Absolutely. And you've been there, Lisa.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So this being a book about a newspaper reporter, it's peppered with newspaper articles. Was this just something that you wanted to do to to flex that, that journalism muscle again? Did you have a lot of fun doing it? Or was it really tough to return to that kind of format of writing?
1: I think I had pent up longing Um, (laughs) and I wanted to give the reader the sense of being in that newsroom with Conley and feeling that adrenaline rush. And I also wanted the reader to have an idea of the kind of pushback you get when you ask uncomfortable questions. Um, So, um, you know, I've been on the receiving end of some pretty angry phone calls back in the day. And, um, you know, I've been on the receiving end of being marched into an editor's office and being told that somebody's called up and wants you fired. So, yeah, I, I really just wanted to give the I wanted to put the reader in the Conway's shoes.
0: You know, as, as you're answering that question, I know you've you've written books for, for so long now. You've done so many of these interviews. Have you ever gotten used to being the one who has to answer the questions rather than ask them?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I've been doing this for 28 years. <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll be watching television or reading a story or listening to the radio and I'll, and I'll hear an interviewing an interviewer asking questions. And every once in a while, I think to myself, I wouldn't have asked that question. I would have asked it a different way. <laughs> that part never, I, I, you know, you never get that out of your system. At
0: the very top of this interview, you mentioned, you know, the plight that's facing many real uh, small town newspapers. What do you think is lost when one of those community based, you know, hyper local papers has to stop printing?
1: Um, so much is lost. The sense that um, of, of there being a voice for the community and not just in politics, but in um in covering schools, in covering civic functions, um, you lose that. A, a big city paper, um, I live in a town that's uh, a mile and a half square, and now it's inside the Beltline in Atlanta. But, and, but you know, the Atlanta Constitution doesn't, doesn't cover what's happening in my town when, for instance, um, trash days change. Well, that trash day is a big deal to people in communities. And so I think you lose that sense of who you are as a community. You lose the ability to come together for a common good.
0: Have you ever thought of starting up maybe your own little anonymous
1: community paper? <laughs> no. I mean, I've watched I've watched efforts come and go, um, and have you know I always have my fingers crossed that it will work out. And I have supported some hyper local efforts in the past but uh you know my job these days is to, is to write the best story i can and in and, and, um and i write a novel a year i'm not starting up a paper anytime soon but you know i support i subscribe to like five different newspapers my hometown paper the tampa bay times i support them I'm a daily subscriber to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So that, that's what I, you know. That's my my way of saying you're important. You matter.
0: And I know for those papers that that's really um, for them that's important to have people subscribe. Subscribe if you want them to stick around. You know, sign up.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the the ironic thing is newspapers. Don't make money off subscriptions. They make money off advertising. But advertising right now, uh, with the economy being in the way it is, you um, got to have subscribers. you got to have eyes looking at the paper.
0: Radio works the same way.
1: I know. Well, you know, there's a reason there is a DJ um, in this story. Yes. Who's kind of a mystery character. I was scouting a small town on the Gulf Coast and um to see if that would be the location for my um for hello summer and uh somebody said oh you should go talk to the radio station here and the radio station was right in the heart of town they had a big picture window and um the dj who who was the morning uh slot person they they were like he this person is so he's he's tapped into everything in the community and i thought well that would be interesting but what if i made him a late night dj and um And the same thing with radio. I mean, radio has gone through huge, huge changes. And so I want to talk a little bit about that, too.
0: I love his character. I love all the characters. There's so many of them, and they're so lovable. But I have to tell you, my favorite is little Grace Ann, and I was laughing out loud at (laughs) at her antics. I mean, she was just like this great little bright spot (laughs) in this novel.
1: Yeah, I you know, sometimes things get dark, uh, and I don't want to write it. Uh, I mean, all kinds of books have all kinds of audiences. My, I think my readers don't want a bleak read, and so Grace Ann was a way to kind of lighten things up and also to um, kind of provide a way for uh, that character's mom to take a close look at what was important to her.
0: What do you want readers to take away?
1: Uh, I want readers to take away the idea that this is a fun book, but it's not empty calories. Uh, it always annoys me when I read something that says, well, this, this, you know, Mary Kay Andrews books are a guilty pleasure. I don't know why guilt and pleasure have to go together. <laughs> um, I want to write a fun, fast paced book, but my characters have real dilemmas and real problems. And um, I don't know why that's a guilty pleasure.
0: Well, if this is a guilty pleasure, they can just keep on coming because the book is a lot of fun. (laughs) And I think it's a perfect perfect distraction for if if people are just looking for something to do this summer, want to get comfortable with something and doesn't really require a lot of restrictions because you can still read a good book without a mask
1: on. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: So we've been talking with Mary-Kate Andrews. The new book is Hello Summer. Thank you for spending some time today and talking to us about it.
1: Thank you, Lisa, for having me. Great to talk to you today.
0: Sin Eater, the debut novel from Megan Campisi, is set in an alternate Tudor England and has been compared to The Handmaid's Tale for its dystopian world in which women struggle against the confines of a patriarchal society. But this isn't a novel about a radical revolution. Instead, it's about the choices women, all women, make in order to survive and live with themselves. I had the pleasure of talking with megan in person before the pandemic made those kinds of interactions impossible why don't we start with you telling us what a sin eater is
2: in the world that you've created okay so a sin eater is a person a social pariah who arrives at uh takes the confession of a dying person and and then when that person passes eats the foods associated with each sin on their coffin uh, to ritually absolve them of those sins and allow them to pass into the next world uh, unblemished.
0: And I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear, myself included, that this is actually rooted in something that happened in real life.
2: Yes, though it was, I've embellished it for the purposes of the novel. So uh, in Britain, and this was, uh, I think the the last Sin Eater supposedly died uh, in the early last century. But Sin Eaters would be, again, a social pariah who would uh, come to the the funeral, so after a person had passed, and ritually eat a piece of bread, or sometimes it was ale or salt, uh to again take on the sins of the person passing so that they could go on uh, unencumbered into the next world. How did you ever stumble upon them? It, you know this is, it, it, it's funny, sin eaters come up occasionally in little pieces of, of literature. In Master and Commander I believe there's a sin eater, uh, there are, there's a wealth of, of really wonderful fiction about sin eaters uh, and you know I I don't remember the exact place I learned about them, but it had always been something that fascinated me because I'm, I'm a big history nerd. And, and the idea that this very uh, r- rich and, and sort of pseudo-Christian, pseudo-pagan ritual existed and that we know so little, bit, uh, so little about it really, uh, really fascinated me.
0: So does that mean most of the traditions associated with sin eaters in your book and, and how they live and what they do and what they eat is your
2: imagination? Oh, yes. So <laughs> so I, I took kind of the kernel of what existed and I knew that to create the story that I wanted to create, I'd need to have kind of an alternate history going on because sin eaters were not widespread. They really existed in small pockets And I think that makes sense because I can't imagine the church really approving on wide scale, uh, approving of uh, wide scale sin eaters. So for me to have this this novel, I really wanted it to be a a strong communion between two people, which meant that there would be a confession aspect to it. Uh, And that really resonated with me. I I grew up Catholic and uh, that was a that was a presence in, in my life, the act of confession and seeing last rites and and so i wanted that aspect to be part of the book so that the main character could have a really strong uh communion with people and become a, an essential part of their lives and we should mention that the only time
0: these people are allowed to speak is at this time of confession
2: yes and um, again that's my invention but uh but but yes i i wanted the her to be a social pariah to an extreme you came to armed with the list of foods because mm-hmm. i think
0: that's one of the more interesting parts of this book, not only are there different types of foods associated with the different types of sins, they're a very bizarre list, I think, to modern day, you know, taste
2: buds and sensibilities. Absolutely. How did you decide what foods would be associated with what sins? So I spent a lot of time looking at Tudor cookbooks, number one, uh, looking through old recipes. Uh, in, in my early days, one of my, my artist survival jobs was as a cook uh, in Paris, and so I, I, I love food, I love recipes, and uh, so it was a lot of fun to do that research. And then some of it, I have to say, was just my imagination. What 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 appealed to me? I liked the idea of of some of these words. The word gristle uh, is so evocative to me, um, and also syllabub. I love the sounds of these. Uh, so I thought about some of the sins have kind of cousin sins like. Envy and covetousness, you have to kind of split hairs about what exactly are the differences. And and so I had uh, foods that are related or kind of in the same family of foods, all, all dairy items, for example.
0: And it's interesting, too, because, you know, when people think of confession, you being raised Catholic, I was raised Catholic. Confession is something between you and the priest. Nobody else knows about it. Mm -hmm. But sin eating is kind of the opposite because at the funeral, the food is laid out on the coffin. And if everyone is familiar with foods associated with the sins, they know exactly what this person may have done that had been kept secret until the point of their death.
2: Yes, I liked that idea that you had to at some point share with your community, and there's some sense of accountability. Now, of course, you've passed on, but, but the community learns about who you are. And that's central to the plot of your book. Absolutely, and so I liked it on two levels. Number one, because I thought it was an interesting sociological experiment. And then second, it it allowed me to create the mystery that is central to Sin Eater.
0: The, the book has been likened to A Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. I think there's a little bit of The Scarlet Letter in there as well.
2: I agree. Um, did those classic stories inspire you? Absolutely. And The Scarlet Letter in, in particular, that was something that I was thinking about. The idea of, of what it's like to be a marked person, what it is, is it like for society to tell you who you are and uh, tell you what your position is, and then how you, certainly for me, coming of age, started to learn how to decide for myself. Uh, which I think is something that a lot of us grapple with, and many of us are still on that journey of figuring out f- for ourselves who we want to be. And in both those books and your book, too, that who that we're talking about, we're really talking about women. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and and another thing about The Scarlet Letter that I really like is, in that book, uh, Hester's isolation actually becomes a source of, freedoms that are unanticipated and and that's a big part of Sinita as well. Right because May May Owens who's your main character
0: there there is a point where she realizes that the fact that she's a social pariah means she can kind of go out and do things and nobody's gonna stop her. Absolutely. And whatever that meant in like Tudor England. Yes yes (laughs) yes yes. yes. It's and and so it is in the past during the time of a fictional queen who's Mm -hmm. very much like Elizabeth the first but you know, uh, going back to how modern day society treats women, they weren't treated very well back then either. And, you know, and also the people who who then were on the fringes of everyday life, like mm-hmm. the actors and the performers or maybe the lepers and the yeah. way those people are viewed today as well.
2: Absolutely. I liked the idea that that May finds her home eventually among other I call them unseen, the people who are on the fringes of society. And, and to me, the, the book is not only about deciding who you are for yourself, but also finding your true family, whether they be related to you or not.
0: And, you know, for somebody who isn't supposed to speak, May is awfully
2: powerful for someone with no voice. Th- that was, it was really enjoyable to find ways that she could uh, have agency in her life without words. And I think that, uh, some of my background in theater really helped with this. I, I've, I've written a lot of plays, and in, in plays, uh, you just have dialogue. Um, it, it, so it seems that, that that would be the opposite. But, but there's so much that you actually learn how to communicate with actions. And I think that there is an entire uh, vocabulary that we have with action and physicality that we, we, we forget about. And so I really got to lean on that when writing this book. Is that theater background also why there's a traveling troupe of actors who put on a show? Absolutely. I'm a big theater geek. I, I teach at a theater conservatory in Manhattan. And so it's it's part of my everyday life.
0: I have to say, um, I'm not going to spoil anything, but I found myself surprised at where May ends up. It's mm. not where I
2: thought things were going to go. So I, this is... Some people have asked, is this a feminist book? And I think that because I am a feminist, anything that I write kind of falls in that category. Um, But yes, this book is not necessarily a a radical overthrowing of a society or a a social structure. It's more, I like to think of it as uh, one woman's tiny revolution in how she makes choices in her life and how she views herself. Uh, looking at how, for example, in my own life, I could make tiny choices that would greatly impact my agency um, and and my my social interactions for the better. It's it's like the message is because I think a, a lot of times in all the noise that we hear about being
0: feminist, about women's rights, about what we should be doing for ourselves, your book it's kind of saying you know what it's okay if you find a way to make a change that works for you that maybe is against you know the against what society wants from you but Mm -hmm. it's okay if you are not the person the history books
2: will remember as making the change i think that freedom is very different for different people and i think that empowerment is very different for different people and you have to find what works for you Uh, And that's, that's, at the end of the day, that's, that's who you owe it to is yourself.
0: And is that what you really want readers to take away?
2: I think that, yes, that that how you view yourself is so critical. um, And to to go out and find, find your home, find the people that value you. Uh, But yeah, that you need to decide for yourself. Are you
0: going to give us another book about May or is May one and done and We'll have to think about what she's up to in our own imaginations.
2: Well, the next book that I'm working on is not a book about May, so I'll I'll say that. Um, I'm working on a book about the American Civil War, another historical fiction, uh, looking at two real-life spies, uh, one Confederate and uh, one Union. She was a Pinkerton agent, and uh, a moment when, when one had the other under house arrest, and how you deal with... Uh, someone across the political divide with whom you have like absolutely um, different beliefs and and if you can ever come to any common ground or how how you might begin to bridge such a gap. I can't even imagine what sort of, you know,
0: inspiration that came from.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So
0: we've been talking with Megan Campisi. Her book is Sin Eater. Thank you for coming in and chatting with us today.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we
0: go meta with a beach read, get this, set at the beach, and titled Beach Read. There's more, but you'll have to wait for our interview with author Emily Henry to hear all about it. Until then, keep following us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.